in Vietnam, a mad minute is when you engage and you think it's an hour, but it's 30, 40, 50 seconds. And it's the longest 30, 40, 50 seconds of your life. His name is Jim Zwitt. He's a portrait in courage, dedication, and perseverance. Not just during his tour in Vietnam a half century ago, but in the years that followed his return from battle. Jim was 20 years old, part of the 101st Airborne, in a platoon sent to recover the body of a fellow soldier killed in the Oshaw Valley two days earlier. Leave no one behind. Badly outnumbered, the men walked into a horrible ambush. Eight of them were killed. Jim's wit was badly wounded. Doctors did not think he would live, but he did. After more than 20 months in the hospital, Jim made it his life's mission to find the families of the eight who died, to bring them some explanation of what happened, to bring them a measure of peace. There were no internet search engines or social media connections when Jim began his crusade, just old-fashioned detective work, determination, and a bit of luck. From Honor Flight Chicago, this is Jim's Witt's story. So you're 19 years old, and you're Mr. Know-it-all, right? Yes, I was. <laughs> but you're at UIC, and you decide, I'm going to leave college. Not gonna, I'm not going to go on. And you make a decision. What's your decision? Uh, my decision was to uh, quit school, and because uh, I was a little, I was, a, I was a hockey player at UIC, and <clears throat> wasn't playing much, and you know, I, I just was pissed off. <laughs> so uh, basically, I just, you know, left school because I really wasn't there to get an education. So I went home and told my folks, and it went from bad to worse. Yeah, I come from a family of nine kids, and both of my folks worked, and, uh, you know, I guess I was going to be a ditch digger or a bum or, you know, all these different things. And, uh, oh, God, it was like living in hell for a couple weeks. Uh, my number was fairly low. Uh, I, it was questionable whether I would have been drafted, and... Uh, but I would have went probably in the summer or late summer. And I just go, you know what? Let's get this over with. So I, uh, at the time, they were taking um, draftees for the Marines. They would line you up over at the draft board and go, dot, 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 Marine, Marine, Marine. And a couple of my good friends from school had joined the Marines. They were mentally unstable. <laughs> so I go, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to do that. So I went to the Army recruiter. I said, what's the deal? And he goes, well, you, you owe us two years, sign here, then it guarantees you going into the Army. So signed on the line, went home, told my folks I had a job. They said, where at? I said, the Army. Oh, my God. If I thought it was bad the week before, it got worse. So thank, thankfully, I was only there another week or 10 days. Uh, beginning of February, I ended up Fort Campbell, Kentucky, eight weeks, followed by beautiful Fort Polk, Louisiana, for eight more weeks, combat infantry training. I came home for a 30-day leave, and then the end of June, voila, Vietnam. Were you fearful? Uh, I think stupidity came into play, not fearful, fearfulness. I just, I wasn't, I don't want to say I wasn't afraid, but, you know, you're 19 and you go, what can they do to me? You, you know? got the world by the tail. <laughs> you're right, yeah. And, you know, it's, I'm not going to come home in a box. That's, it's not going to happen. You know, I did very well on my training. Horrible, horrible at the M16. You know, I had never shot in a wep uh, shot a weapon. When I first went uh, on the range at Fort Campbell, I, I don't know if I wasn't doing the sights correctly. Oh my God, I couldn't hit the barn side of a 
the broadside of a barn, okay? So week seven, we did uh, machine gun training. Well, as soon as I picked up that M60, snapped on about 100 rounds and pulled that trigger, I'm not saying I hit everything in front of me, but whatever was in front of me <laughs> was fair game. And I felt very confident. So um, I just figured that was my, that was going to be my, uh, my niche. Mm -hmm. So, but I was told all these drill sergeants, oh, you don't want to be a machine gunner. That's the first position they take out. Hey, they ain't taking me out of them, bringing it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that's what I decided. Uh, I get to Vietnam in July of 70. And, uh, you know, you're the new guy. They, they called you Cherry, you know. And then when you saw your first contact, your Cherry was busted, okay. So um, I went there and they were passing out grenades and extra this and extra that and claymores. And they said, who wants a 60? I went, right here. So I ended up with the 60 the whole time there. And you're 101st Airborne. With the 101st Airborne. Then how much time elapses before you actually see the combat that's going to change your life? We had combat about six weeks in because uh, we were working the lowlands. Because what they do, the company, we, we were, you're the replacements. Mm -hmm. So guess what? Guess why you're the replacement? Because something bad happened to that company. And what they did, they wouldn't take you back and get counseling. They would take you out of the fields for a day and maybe bring you to Eagle Beach. And, okay, you could go in the water. But then they wouldn't let us in the water because it was too rough. Now, let me ask you. You're getting shot at in the jungle. You lose a couple guys. They take you out of the field. They bring you to the beach. But you can't go in because the water's too rough. So, uh, Sometimes that army logic just didn't uh, make a lot of sense. Army intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. Those are those are two words I never use in the Oxy, same sentence. Oxymoron. Right. Yes. Yeah. Basically, uh, it was close to nine months before the life-changing uh, combat uh, uh, contact. Take me to the day when your one of your colleagues, one of your fellow soldiers, is down, and you you got to get the body, right? Because yeah. you leave nobody behind. Right. right. Alpha Company of our battalion went in on this mission, and unfortunately, thirty and forty years later, I get all these after-action reports, and it was a hellhole. That place was crawling with enemy. I mean, all over the place. I mean. It wasn't only Alpha Company. Charlie Company hit it. Uh, Echo Company hit it. Every single company they threw in this area, I mean, took casualties. Well, unfortunately, Alpha Company went in. Boom, boom, boom. They ended up one of the guys that couldn't get out, and they left on the LZ. So our job was to retrieve the body. Leave nobody behind. Leave nobody behind. So you go in, and what happens? Uh, well, the, uh, the ridge line where the body was, if they would have dropped us in that same ridge line, we would have met the same fate. Because they were, oh God, we ended up finding out they were dug in. They, were, they had bunkers and solidified bunkers. I mean, they were, they were there for probably a good 60 days. You're building a little town there. And they were just waiting for us. I mean, they were just going to pick us off. So um, on the 13th, they dropped us on an adjoining ridgeline. Well, for two days, the Air Force, they bombed the bejesus out of this ridgeline. I mean, it was, God, 500-pound bombs, 1,000. You could feel the ground shake across the valley. That's how big these bombs were. Mind you, it's... 
100 degrees plus, you probably have four or five times the ammo and uh, that you normally would carry uh, on a regular mission. So you're loaded to the gills. Your rucksack's usually 70, 60, 70 pounds or so. Uh, we were humping about a buck and a quarter. The reason this mission was so tedious, there was 78 of us now. All these bombs that were dropped, triple canopy jungle. Trees were a scattered mess. So trees were thrown all over the place. So you're crawling under, crawling over. I mean, it, it was tedious as all get out. You know, trying to get from point A to point B to where, you know, we believed the body was. And uh, uh, we found out, I found out a few years back, that we were being followed the entire time. I got the paperwork. I mean, they just watched us, followed us. We knew we heard somebody following us. They were well dug in, well fortified. I mean, they watched us for two days. We, we had no idea. We're 18, 19 years old. And, and you're terribly outnumbered, too. Oh, God. Uh, well, uh, once again, you know, 20, 30 years later, we find out that there's, you know, 1,500 enemy waiting for us, 78 of us. So go figure. So Lieutenant McKenzie leads the way down the trail, and he's I, well, got. Well, what, what you do is um, normally on a on a regular mission, uh, you'd have a point a point element that would walk a little bit ahead of everybody else, six six guys or so, and uh, usually you change point element, eh, maybe every couple hours. You got to keep them fresh because if they got to cut trail, well. This mission was so tedious, we were so loaded down with ammo, it was so hot, and the terrain, all the trees that were down, it made it so tough that we were changing point elements every half hour, every 45 minutes. We didn't know how close we were, but we didn't want to hit them at night. Okay, we, we had a, if we're going to do something, we wanted to do it during the day. So... The captain decided finally to, uh, you know, set up our night defensive position at this one location. That evening, Lieutenant McKenzie, well, I know he volunteered because that's the kind of guy he was. He was our only black lieutenant, but he was the one guy who we'd go balls to the wall for. And the reason is, is because he wouldn't walk up to you on a given day and go, oh, you see that hole there, that tunnel? Why don't you couple guys go in there and tell me what you find? No, he'd go, you, you, and you follow me. Guess what? He's the goods. There's nobody that wouldn't go to bat for this guy and go to the wall. So that evening, the LT, uh, I'm sure he volunteered, and he took... Uh, like a small squad. It was either five or six guys. Well, unbeknownst to us, we were we were on top of these guys. And they had such good noise discipline, the enemy did, where we didn't hear them, we didn't nothing. So as Lieutenant McKenzie, we were following like what they call a high-speed trail uh, during the day the best we could. And... We're being careful, watching ourselves. So he continued down this trail, and the enemy watched him. And as Lieutenant McKenzie and Jerry Stearns, which was one of his men, got into, got past their first line of defense, their first set of bunkers, all hell broke loose. I mean, it was... Uh, God, it was uh, it went from complete silence to the loudest thing you can imagine. 
explosions, gunfire. And nobody knew where it was coming from. We knew where Lieutenant McKenzie went. So we tried to give him support by firing to the right and left because we couldn't fire down the trail. Cause that's, so a few of the guys were able to make it back, you know, because that's how close they were. And uh, uh, this, what, we call it a mad minute. Yes. And uh, in Vietnam, a mad minute is when you engage and you think it's an hour, but it's 30, 40, 50 seconds. And it's the longest 30, 40, 50 seconds of your life. And it's, uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable. So we were getting our, our night defensive position ready. Well, this changed everything. We all rushed to the front trying to give some support to our guys that were up front. So like, you know, 30, 40, 50 seconds, a minute, everything goes silent. They stop firing, we stop firing. And it's like a dead silence. Well, the only thing I could hear is Lieutenant McKenzie calling for a medic. I'm hit, I'm hit, I need a medic. Well, we knew he was close because we can, we could still hear him. Yeah, I sort of was like, what the heck? So, you ditched your machine gun. I, I put my machine gun on the line, took a guy's uh, M16, and said, you know, I think I can get up there, but I need I need fire support. We had a probably a 15 or 20 foot wide area that I was going to probably run down where this trail was, but all of our guys had to fire to the right or left, otherwise they would have shot me in the butt going down there. So when I said I was ready, we brought it. I mean, we brought everything we had. So I was able to get up there. There's LT. I kneeled down, tried to figure out what's going on. He, always hit, he was hitting the arm and the leg, but I, went, I just wasn't sure, and I was going to try to bandage him up. Well, when I got to him and knelt down, Behind me, I can hear these high-pitched uh, Vietnamese voices. Now, what's wrong with that picture? My guys are over there. LT McKenzie's here. The enemy's between us. Right. So I sort of realized then... It was, I didn't have time to bandage him. I just had to grab him. Uh, Jerry Stearns was already deceased. So the LT, I just took him, threw him over my shoulder. And as I started heading back to the rest of our guys, I got about, oh God, maybe 20, 30 yards. And there was an explosion to my right. The explosion uh, threw uh, me and Lieutenant McKenzie off the off the trail into the brush. Now, Lieutenant McKenzie gurgled a couple times and that was the end. I ended up with a gaping hole in my chest from this explosion. Now I'm laying there, the explosion happens, I'm wounded. Guess what? Mad minute, our guys start firing, their guys start firing. Now, thankfully, I'm so stunned or wounded, I cannot get up. Because if I would have gotten up, I would have gotten hit by a barrage of gunfire from either side. So I'm laying there in the brush, and I could literally hear the whistling over my head, you know, the, the gunfire. So... It's going on and on. You think it's an hour, it's a minute, two minutes. You've taken shrapnel to your side. Your kidney is hit. The reason I got it in my side is because that was the only thing that was exposed. LT McKenzie was over my right side. And I'm going to tell you what I tell the students. In life, it's, it's a funny thing, but he probably saved my life. He was draped over me. He probably got 90% of the shrapnel. 
from this explosion, killed him, and the initial uh, shrapnel that went in my chest, it went through my chest wall, to my lung, to my liver, embedded in my kidney. So I had a gaping hole in my chest. So I'm laying there. The, sh the, the mad minute stops. Silence. Now I'm screaming for a medic. I'm hit, I'm hit, I need a medic. Well, a few minutes later, uh, Sergeant Charles Crone comes crawling up. Now, Charlie Crone, he was a big old country boy from Maryville, Tennessee. Big old Charlie, he crawls up there and he starts, he brought a bandage with him and he saw the hole in my side. He starts rolling me around and trying to stop the bleeding. Well, as he's doing that, he grunts and goes, oh, I'm hit. If I got to go back, I'll send somebody else up. So he crawls back. A few minutes later, up crawls uh, this fellow, Phil Brummett. Now, Phil Brummett, he, he hated me. <laughs> there, there was no love between us, okay? If there was a list of 100 guys that I could write out that would have came get me, he would have been about 180, okay? Well, he comes crawling up there. No conversation. Grabs me by my collar, starts dragging me back. As he's dragging me, there's another explosion. He gets hit in the arm and the leg. I get strapped on the foot, leg, and back. And it was so hot. You know, that whatever, wherever it came from, it was just so hot and burning that it shocked me. But he was able to get me somewhat up to my knees, and then he was able to stand up, and he uh, got me the last, like, maybe 20 yards that we had to go to get to the logs where the rest of the guys came forward, dragged me and him over the logs, helped us uh, to safety. Do you remember that moment when you finally got out of the line of fire and got back to some measure of safety? Uh, yeah, they leaned me against a tree. I know the medic gave me a couple shots of morphine to stop the bleeding a little bit because I was, my breathing, the harder I breathed, the more I bled. So they bandaged me up, gave me a couple shots of morphine. Now, mind you, I got hit about 6.50. PM. I didn't get medevaced till 10:30. Okay, so I leaned against that tree and had an M16. And they go, "Hey, it might be every man for himself. Here you go." So they leaned me against a tree and they called for, you know, a medevac to come. But first couple medevacs came in. I mean, they were under such heavy fire that they brought some gunships in to uh, assist. Did you think you were going to die? Um, you know what? No, because I think, I think if I thought I was going to die, I wouldn't have made it. I just wasn't, wasn't going to happen. Now, leaning against a tree, they had to drop a jungle penetrator to get me. A jungle penetrator is like a, it's like a ball, a metal ball, with three, like, two-inch metal slats spring-loaded spring where you put the slats down, you put your butt between the slats, they got a belt that goes behind you, they hook it, and believe me, no safety features. They just hook this thing onto the cable and then pull you up. I'm oblivious to everything at that point. They load me on, they start pulling me up, about halfway up and uh, they start taking fire. I guess they took 13 hits. Well, the last thing that happened was an RPG and the enemy fired a rocket propelled grenade and it skid, it hit the skid okay. and deflected behind it and exploded. Well, that threw the chopper forward and the guys just went, if we hover any longer, 
we, we ain't going to make it. Do they keep pulling you in? So they take off. Oh, now you're, you're hanging in the. In the- I, I'm I'm about forty foot below the tree line. There's a tree every two three feet. So I'm on this jungle penetrator. The chopper starts flying away. Well, I'm kissing every tree. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, it's kicking the shit out of me, you know. So, but they're trying to get height to pull me out as they're wheeling me up. So they finally get me the last 30 or 40 feet, get me into the chopper. And I guess I wasn't too happy. So I get to the field hospital, 12 hours of surgery, and uh, 15th, 16th, I wake up to 17th in a field hospital. I got tubes coming out of every place, nose, chest, you name it, you know. And I knew I wasn't in heaven, okay? So, so... That was the beginning of my uh, uh, rehabilitation and a 20-month journey to get well. Tell me about Bob Hine. Now, Bob Hine... He was a, uh, he was in Lieutenant McKenzie's platoon. I was in third platoon, they were in second. Now, Bob and I, I'm going to be honest with you. Bob liked us because we like to get high. Not in the field, never in the field. But when we got back to the rear, Katie barred the door. He was like my brother. So he'd come over and... He's from California. I was never to California. He was telling me about uh, his Norton Commando motorcycle or whatever the hell he had. And he goes, and I had a motorcycle too. So we planned on going, getting out of Vietnam. Uh, I was going to go to California, get a motorcycle. We're going to do the PCH run, Pacific Coast Highway. But, you know, Bob and I were just good buds. And he had made a pact with me. Now, don't ask me why. He said, if something happens to one of us, he goes, the other guy has to go back and see the family to explain what happened. Well, lo and behold, all this stuff happens. Now, that night... Bob was one of the guys, came forward, dragged me over the logs, helped set me up against a tree. Now, he was bringing me canteen after canteen of water. He'd crawl back every so often, canteen of water, canteen of water, canteen of water. Well, you know what? There was a point where he didn't come back. I don't know how long it was. I don't know. He got direct hit with an RPG. Killed instantly. You tell me. Was he getting me that canteen? Or was he? Or was he just happened to be on this firing line? Something I have to live with. But, but you know what you have to do at that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, without question. When I, when I heard he got killed, I mean, it just, and I, I think about it to this day. I knew, I knew when I got better, I knew where I was going to go. Thus begins your search to find his mom. As soon as I get healthy. Right. And this is not going to be an easy search because we do not have, in 1970, the Internet. We don't have Google. You you got to do a manual search. You got to do an old style search. Right. So, uh, unfortunately, everything I owned, address book, everything I owned, was on the, in that backpack that I carried that night. Well, that was destroyed. 
they destroy all they destroyed all my stuff in the field. So I had zero addresses of anybody when I got home. You know, so in 1973, I started uh, calling uh, the newspaper. I called the Sacramento Bee, and I asked that person, can you search the obituaries? And I had to give them like a three or four week period because they didn't always ship the bodies right away. You know, I worked on that for a while, came up empty. I don't want to say years went by, but I always kept it in my mind. Uh, in late, probably in the late 70s, uh, a friend of mine went to Sacramento. And I said, listen, do me a favor. Go to a phone booth and rip out all, all the pages with Hine. Well, hell, that'd be two or three hundred. You know, so I called everyone. Nothing. I mean, it was just, it was just horrible. But you, you're driven to do this, right? Um, yeah. I'm, you're not going to let it. You're not going to let yourself fail. I'm running out of uh, avenues of investigation. Time, time starts moving on. That's eighty-three, eighty-four, eighty-five. So now computers, cell phones uh, come into play. So 1988, I happened to see a military magazine, and there's a, uh, a fella, Stan Atkinson. He's like the Bill Curtis of Sacramento, and he's helping build a Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Sacramento. So I'm looking at this, I'm going, what the hell do I got to lose? So I write him a letter. There's Stan, explain to him what's going on. He gives this letter to one of the guys on the committee named Mike Kelly. Mike Kelly was also 101st Airborne, okay? So I, I get a call from Mike Kelly. It's a Wednesday. I'll never forget it. Now, I'll go back to 1973. I was able to keep contact with the doctors that saved my life in Vietnam. One was in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. The other one was Dr. Carroll. He was just getting out of the military, and he was coming to Chicago to head the trauma unit at Cook County. So I kept a relationship with my doctor to this day. I, uh, my my wife is godfather to one of his grandkids. I watched all his children be born. Well, on that Wednesday, he was in Chicago for a surgeon's convention with his family. And we were all going out to dinner. So I get this call from this Mike Kelly. He goes, Jim. He goes, yeah, Mike Kelly. I say, yeah. And he starts BSing. What unit? 101st, me too, blah, 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 blah. So he was in one of our sister companies. He was wounded September of 70. So we're talking. I'm giving him all the information on Bob Hine. He works for the uh, assessor's office. He goes, I'll go through the assessor's roles. I'll get old every family. I said, listen, I can't talk much more. I said, I'm, as a matter of fact, funny thing about it is I'm going uh, out with the doc that saved my life in Vietnam. He goes, where did you have surgery? I said, 85th DeVac. He goes, me too. Mm-hmm. He goes, listen, do me a favor. Ask your doctor if he knows who my doctor is. I'd like to, you know, thank him. So I said, well, what's his name? He says, Charles Carroll. And I said, sit down, big boy. I says, that's who I'm having dinner with. Oh, man. Well, guess what? The hook was in his mouth, and I was reeling him in. He went nuts. This guy's going to do his best to find Bob for me. Mike's very involved in the uh, parade, speeches, the various things for this December dedication of the Veterans Memorial in California. And I told him, I said, hey, 
we find Bob's mom. I'm there. Well, Mike Kelly is on a conference call with like five other guys talking about the parade route, speeches for the memorials, uh, dedication. During a lull in the conversation, this guy Doug Durham from Stockton says, he goes, Jesus, he goes, you know, my brother-in-law's coming all the way from Alaska so he can walk in his buddy's place, Bob Hine, in this in the parade. Well, Kelly <laughs> fell out of his chair and he goes, What did you say? He goes, he goes, No, my brother-in-law, Pat Conrad, he's coming in from Alaska. He goes, no, no, no. Who's he coming to see? He goes, Oh, Bob Hines' mom. He's gonna walk. He goes, Oh my God. So it turns out that Bob also made a pact with Pat. Pat, before he went home, he went from Vietnam to Sacramento or California and spent three days with Bob's mom telling, telling her what a great son she, that she had. So get a, you get a call from Kelly, and he says, we've made connections. And well, which, I, I, which... I got the voice messages, and he's going crazy, and I get a thing from Kelly. So what, you're going to call me. You're not going to believe what happened. Then I get a call from this Pat Condren. He goes, oh, Jim, uh, I've been in touch with uh, 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 Bob's mom. He gives me Bob's mom's number. Call, and he had called Bob's mom and said, the guy that Bob was carrying out, that he got the bronze star for, is going to call you tomorrow. And he sort of briefed me on what a wonderful woman she was. Well, it was the hardest call of my life. I called her the next day, and she was like another mom to me. I mean, I mean, from that moment on, it was, that was it. And I, and I, Ended up going to Sacramento. Pat and I walked in Bob's place in that parade. When you got to the airport in Sacramento, there she is, and you meet her. And what does she tell you? What? She just, you know, all us, all us big, tough, 101st Airborne guys there, and, and there's the... TV guy, and he's talking to her. How special is this day to you? What does this mean to you to see the young man here who, who, whose life is saved and he's sitting here because of your son? Well, I'm real proud of my son. And uh, it is as if just a part of Bob has come back now through Jim. I can wipe my eyes now. Oh. I'm all composed. <laughs> I didn't think I'd get through this. But. Oh. <laughs> it was a tough one, but... You tough guys are all crying, aren't you? Ooh, it was, it was, uh, it was unbelievable. And you know, the, from that moment on, uh, I said to myself, I am going to find every family. There is not going to be a stone unturned. seven, right? Seven, seven remaining. Seven remaining that you've got to find. Right. And, and once again, you don't have, and, and how many years have gone by before, from the incident to? Seventeen. Seventeen years. It's taken you 17 years to find Bob Hines' mom. And you make the decision, I'm going to find the other seven families too, and tell them what happened. Right. So I start going crazy. And by then, like you say, there's internet, by 1991, uh, six others, six other families. Every family was different. Jerry Stern's family was very difficult. Body came home, closed casket. His mom never believed he, her son was in that casket. Never changed his room, died never believing. I mean, that was, that was a tough one. 
Bird McGinnis, his son, Charles. He was wounded probably shortly after I was. He ended up dying in my friend Bob Gerisi's arms. I was able to connect at a reunion Bird McGinnis and Bob Gervasi. I introduced them. They went for a walk in the woods. About two hours later, they came back. You could see their faces were all flush. Bird walked over to me, and he said to me, he said, Jim, he said, the Lord can take me tomorrow because now I know that my son did not die alone. He, He said he died with somebody that cared for him and loved him. That's what it means. I mean, that's how powerful these these meetings are. And I I had no idea. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad I was able to, you know, do a couple of those things. So bring me forward to William Ward. He is the, the only one of the eight that you've not been able to find family for. Right. And you, you're in D.C., right? You're at the wall, and it is an anniversary. The 40th anniversary. We, we went there for the 20th, 30th, 40th. Me and, a, me and a few of the guys. We're at the wall. Beautiful day. April 15th, 2011. And uh, William Ward was all black. He was from rural North Carolina. So we're standing at the wall about 1.30 in the afternoon. Now, all of our names are on panel 4W, but they're very close to the bottom of that panel. So these women are talking to the park ranger, two black women, two small children. So they walk over, these women, to panel 4W, and we were sort of blocking it. So they excused us. So we step back. I'm watching this woman start searching for names. And I'm going, oh, God, something's just, something's not right. And when she knelt down to look towards the bottom of the wall, something just said to me, hey, go do it. I tapped her on her shoulder. I said, can I help you find a name? Because I'm looking for William Ward. And I'm like, oh, my God. I turned to Gervais. This is Ward's family. I put my arm around her. I said, you know, William was killed in a battle, documented battle with seven other guys. I was there. He was there. And she, like, she she couldn't believe it. She knelt down. She wept. Well, guess what? I'm kneeling next to her crying, okay? And I got my arm around her, and I'm saying, oh, my God. I'm so glad that you came for the anniversary. She goes, what anniversary? I says, today, 40 years ago today, is when this battle happened. William lost his life with these seven other guys. She said, I had no idea. I says, then what are you doing here? What are you doing here today? She goes, I'm a school principal and a minister, and I live in Hampton, Virginia, which is about a two-hour train drive. This is my daughter. These are my granddaughters. Today was Grandparents' Day at the school. I decided to take the day off, surprise them. And she goes, I've never been to the wall to do a rubbing. So that's why I came. And she said to me, divine intervention. I was going to ask you, coincidence or do you believe in divine intervention? Divine intervention. <laughs> and she's a woman of the cloth. So, I mean, she, she was divine intervention. <laughs> so you've got to be thinking at that moment, my mission is complete. Well, I didn't want to get on the plane. <laughs> Come back. I'm going, that baby's going down. I finally... <laughs> I finally did what I had to do. Well, you know, I called Kelly, because, you know, Kelly was, he knew about my search. And when I called him in California to tell him, he went bonkers. He goes, I can't believe this. I said, Mike, 
I'm telling you, it, it's meant to be. When you look back on all this now, what do you conclude drove you? You could have stopped at some point and said, I've done the best I can, but you kept going. What drove you? A man of my word. I'm just, I mean, when it, the, it drove me to find Bob's mom to the max, okay? Once I saw what it meant to her, Oh man, that fire was burning, and it, it just had to be done. Because most of what the United States government sent home to grieving parents was, your son has been lost in battle. Right, your, son's been, your son's been killed by hostile fire, his body be home in seven to ten days, blah, blah, blah. End of story, yeah. End of life, end of story. Right, and the commanders were threatened in Vietnam, that they could, they could have no contact explaining anything. What happened, them. right. So this was kind of a way for you to rectify a lot of things that you thought were unjust and a very difficult notification of family when they've lost a loved one. Yeah, without, without question. I mean, I, mean I, I know it didn't help uh, Mrs. Stearns, but... Everyone else, you know, got some answers. How many times over the years have you been at the wall? Probably 12. Is each time therapeutic? I'll tell you the first time. Uh, I was uh, in Baltimore, 1983, playoffs. Mm-hmm. White Sox, Baltimore. White Sox in Baltimore, yeah. Okay. Right. I was out there with a couple of guys, so... The wall was brand new. I wanted to go to the wall. So these guys goes, oh, we'll go with. I said, you can't. And I, I said, you can't. So I rented the car, drove to D.C., parked my car, and then I had to walk across the street to get to where the wall is. I started walking. I almost threw up. I mean, it was like, oh, God. You know, it was... It was horrible, and I just had to compose myself. And uh, it took a little while for me to go there that day, and uh, that's when it really sunk in. And uh, from that day on, it was, that's where my buddies are. That's where they're at. When you went there with Honor Flight Chicago and you... You watched other vets go up to the wall. Um, you could understand what they were going through. Absolutely. Unfortunately, uh, what's been uh, okay? The moms and dads are pretty much gone. Okay, but in the eighties, when I'd go to the wall, you can you can walk the length of that wall. And you could look in those eyes, and you knew, you knew who had somebody there. No, no question. And that's probably what I miss, is walking and looking in those eyes. Because, you know, people now are mostly gone. The moms and dads. Well, the moms and dads are all gone, but now even a lot of vets or family members, but uh, those were the those were the times I I would uh, just look in their eyes. I just know. Can you tell me about the healing process that that offers? I mean, you you've been healed to an extent by virtue of what you've done. The presence at the wall for veterans who go there is it a healing thing for them? I hear from many that it is. Yes, it, it, both, both though. There's both healing and there's still some guys that are angry. I mean, they, they're they angry probably because some, 
some lieutenant or captain walked his buddy into some place he shouldn't have walked. So there's probably guys that are angry, but um, I think they're few and far between. But it's, I mean, I, I, I feel a closeness more than any time at all when I go there and there's my guys. Over your many years since, you've lived with a lot of health issues brought on by the fact that you were so terribly wounded. And your condition now is a little precarious, too. But you keep moving on. He's 10-4. You got to keep, you got to keep uh, your head up and you got to keep the, uh, everything moving, moving forward. Do you tell yourself, I got to maintain my enthusiasm for life? Because I don't know of too many people who've been through what you've been who still are pretty positive. So positive. I've had my moments. Uh, this, what I'm going through now, has tested me. And uh, This is treatment for cancer. Yes. It's, uh, it's tested my... Uh, desire to go on. <clears throat> it's angered my wife because she goes, you're not the guy that I know. You're not the guy that went to Vietnam and back. You're not the guy that, you know, because there's moments where I I go, Yeesh. I don't know if this is working, but, you know, I got I to keep going. I'm glad you feel that way. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're a treasure to talk to, you know that? Well, I appreciate that. It's, uh, I enjoy sharing my story. As they always say, thank you for your service, but more importantly for you, welcome home. Well, oh, thank you very much. Okay. Jim's wit, you're a piece of work. <laughs> Jim has struggled most of his adult life with health issues largely related to what happened on that day almost 50 years ago. But he hasn't let those challenges define his life. He is much better understood as a man who made it his life's mission to carry a message to honor the memory of his brothers in arms. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org. <laughs>